Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. Welcome, everyone, to episode 85 of The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm Nathan Barry. I'm joined by my good friend and coworker, Miguel, today. Miguel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's exciting to be here. So before we do any red, yellow, green, or any of the usual things and then dive into questions, which by the way, if anyone has questions, drop them in the chat. Teddy, it's good to see you there. Miguel, why don't you tell everyone what you do at ConvertKit and give a little bit of a backstory? Yeah. So what I basically do at ConvertKit is a bunch of cool stuff. So I get to help people one-on-one with technical issues. Whenever you have a problem, you're trying to find a way to customize something on your site or something, and it's not working the way that you want it to. If our typical support people can't help, it bubbles up to me and my good friend, Steven. We handle any of the more technical issues, and we also help prioritize feature requests and bugs and things that are kind of getting in the way of people just trying to get their stuff out there. So it's really rewarding, especially since people, you know, when you have that aha moment and everything just starts working, it's it's a lot of fun to be able to help people that way. Yeah, so you get to be the bridge between the like more serious problems that the customers are having and the product team working on the roadmaps and that kind of thing. So it's not only fixing technical issues, all the things that come up and you're like, you're right, that is broken. Uh, it's going to take some serious digging to figure out what's going on there. And then also bringing it to the product team and saying like, hey, these issues came up six times in the last month. It needs to be a higher priority for us to get that fixed over a different bug. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun to kind of help steer the product sometimes. It's also a lot of fun just being able to help people one-on-one. So you get that instant gratification of just somebody being super excited. It's finally working, you know? This might be putting you on the spot a little too much, but... Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there a type of bug or ticket or integration or something like that where you're just like, oh, no, not one of these, where they're like just famous for being a black hole that can suck you in forever? Yeah, man, so many to choose from. The ones that are always super fun is like custom CSS stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, CSS is like a house of cards. You know, you can make it look perfectly on my MacBook Pro and then somebody fires it up on Microsoft Edge and it just looks like garbage. Or it's on mobile and it's, you know, something's too big or too small. So, you know, you just you're constantly fighting with it so it'll work everywhere. But yeah, every time I get one of those, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. And then you think you might find the solution and it looks great. But then the customer will write back and say, I, I, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. It's still broken on my end. And you're just like banging your head against the wall. Like, what's going on? But yeah, that's, that's a pretty common one. At least it's Edge and not Internet Explorer 6. Yeah. Well, there's sometimes that happens too. And you're just like, yeah, I think my official advice is get a better browser. <laughs> right. It's hard because sometimes there's bugs inside the application where we can be more limiting as far as, you know, what browsers we support, right? Because you're talking to the creator and you can say like, hey, you know, use a modern browser. What's hard is when it's a bug that is subscriber facing, because then you can't tell someone who has 10,000 subscribers like, well, tell your audience to get better browsers. And it's like, ah, that's rough. Luckily, it's a much smaller part of the application that's audience facing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 
every once in a while, we have a really courageous audience member will help a creator with the problem that they're having. Nice. And then they'll, you know, send us forward us emails and they'll actually help us fix the problem for the creator. So that's really cool to kind of see the, the community come through for the creator like that. Yeah. Well, Teddy in the chat knows, and Emily sounds like you're quite familiar with <laughs> the CSS bugs that you encounter as a creator online. Well, let's actually, I was going to dive into questions, but it wouldn't be an episode of the future blogs to creators without red, yellow, green. So on that spectrum, Miguel, how are you doing? You know, I'm greener than I was about 30 minutes ago because this is my podcast, my first go at a podcast. Debut. Debut. That's the word. See, I can't even think of normal English words. <laughs> Debut is a bit of a fancy English word, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds French, so it's pretty fancy. That's right. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm feeling good. The weekend's coming up. You know, I'm in Florida, so the weather's getting really nice here. Really nothing to complain about. And just excited to, you know, try this out and talk to you and hopefully maybe help some people while we're at it. So how about you? Sounds good. I'm green. It was a long week. We had our board meeting, leadership conversations, and just one of those like six or seven hours a day on Zoom kind of weeks. But yesterday we played Among Us with a bunch of people on the team. After this, we're going to do it again. Miguel, are you joining us for some murder afterwards? So I saw the one that happened yesterday and I had some hardcore FOMO going on. So I think I'll jump on this time. I've never played it, but it looks like a lot of fun. So it was a good time. If anyone's wondering, Charlie is the imposter. You can't trust anything that she does. But anyone who's watched the show before isn't surprised there. Well, let's dive into some questions. We've got the first one here from Derek. He says, what are your thoughts on newsletters and their recent resurgence in popularity? So Miguel, you've been at ConvertKit for three and a half years now? Yeah, just about. What's your take on this? Obviously, it's kind of weird, like newsletters and this resurgence is popularity, and we're like, hi, we've been here all along. But <laughs> yeah, what's your take? What do you think about Derek's question? So I think it's an exciting question because like email has always been this tool that's like been around since computers have been around since like the 70s. Yeah. We're still kind of figuring out how to use it. And, you know, the world changes and how we use email changes. But I feel like newsletters becoming popular is kind of like to us, it's like, well, yeah, duh, you know, but in preparation for this podcast, I was reading up what other people thought about them, too, because I wanted to get the perspective of what it's like for someone like us who not dealing with this every day. Like, why do they think that it's suddenly popular and why is it becoming more popular? It's kind of funny because, you know, so there's this idea that I read about that everybody's kind of talking about this thing called like it's passive distribution. So like it's like a newspaper. It's not a daily choice. It just kind of arrives. Maybe you might look at it. Maybe you might not. You might thumb through it. Something might catch your eye. You might just throw it in the recycling bin and try again tomorrow. You don't know. But since the dawn of the Internet, if you want information, you got to go out and get it. You go on Google and you search for it. You got to go and click on something. But this is something that's kind of coming to you. And that relationship with information is slightly different, but important. Right. And usually if you're on a newsletter and you're reading it, you're getting it because you're interested in it. It's got useful information and it's usually has a little bit of personality. So the person sending it will hopefully have their own voice. And you'll be familiar with the author and their opinions and their perspectives. So when they talk about something, you kind of see it through the lens of their perspective and how they talk about it. It makes it more digestible, more relatable. Right. 
it's pretty cool. And also like just that consistency, this cadence of training your readers or your audience to expect something on say a daily basis or a weekly basis or whatever. And then it kind of creates this habit or this like appointment you set for yourself to read this. Like there's a few things that when I get in my inbox, I'm excited for, and it usually lands about the same time every day or every week. And I think to go in my inbox and look for it because I'm into it, you know, it's cool in that way. Right. It's been fun to see like newsletters become popular because they end up being this like higher quality, long form content. You know, you tend to get a lot more out of it than the endless scroll on Instagram or anything like that. So I'm a fan. I'm here for it. Side note, paid newsletters launches in about two weeks on ConvertKit. For anyone tuning in, wine launch one, shoot me an email, DM on Twitter, any of that, and we'll help you get it set up. We've got a bunch of questions pre-submitted. But Emily just dropped one in the chat. And of course, whoever shared with this live gets priority. So Emily asked, what soft skills or technical skills do you think would be most beneficial for the average creator to learn? I would say writing. Writing is probably the most important thing to work on, whether you think of yourself as a writer. Because even if you're making YouTube videos, you're writing scripts and story and ideas there. That's the first one that comes to mind for me. Miguel, what, what are you thinking? Oh, man. You know, I think in the same vein of writing, it's just building really good habits, like constantly. And I know we, we talk about this internally in our company about like atomic habits, James Clear. Yeah. You know, and oh, there it is. James Clear makes an appearance every six episodes. It's in our contract. It has to be done. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I didn't know you had a, a loaded gun there. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's something that sometimes you might not feel inspired. Sometimes you might not, you know, have it in you. But sometimes if you just do it, you might find inspiration in, in the middle of it, you know? And sometimes things are duds. And sometimes things are great and you didn't know it was coming from anywhere. You know, if that's creating a schedule or whatever it is that works for you, and then you're very rigid with that schedule and just whatever motivates you to do something where you otherwise might not. Yeah, that's good. That'll actually tie into our next question from Ryan. The other thing that came to mind, if I could define one soft skill, it would be, okay, if I could define two soft skills, one would be a willingness to be bad at things and to dive in and say like, yep, I am terrible at that because obviously I haven't done it before. So whether it's writing code or design or being intimidated by Figma or, you know, any new tool out there. And the other would be a curiosity on like just how things work. There is so much that you can learn because I was going to say like, oh, everyone should learn like a little bit of web design and at least a little bit of, you know, like typography and design skills and stuff like that, because it'll go a long ways. But I think it's, it's that willingness to like right click on a web page and inspect element and see how to get the color out of it that you want. Just be like, I have no idea what this is. I'm terrible at this. And then kind of dive and be like, oh, this is actually sort of like halfway English. Yeah. Like Emily just said in the chat, like a willingness to start sucky, to just dive in and be like, you know, I'm not any good at this, but let's make it happen. So that's what I was thinking there. Is there anything for you that, I don't know, you dove in on recently or in your career where you started out and you're like, I'm terrible at this, but then it's actually turned into a substantial skill because you're willing to do that? Oh yeah, absolutely. In a past life, I used to be a school teacher. Yeah. And I transitioned careers and I knew nothing about tech, anything. I'd never looked at CSS. I didn't know HTML. I knew nothing about any of that stuff. And I just kind of decided one day to get more serious about it and kind of just, you know, get in there and build a bunch of broken web pages. And then that evolved into, you know, better and better things and then JavaScript and then other things. And then eventually, you know, I got better and better at it. But I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, but you know, you just got to be okay with breaking things and not stopping yourself from trying because you're afraid it's going to suck. 
Right. It's just super important. And I used to tell my students the same thing. You know, don't be afraid to raise your hand because you might look dumb because you said something dumb. You know, share what you've got and be ready to take what comes from that. Right. It might surprise you what you get back from it and where things end up. Yeah. We have more questions coming in, which is great, but I actually have questions and turns out in that priority order. So it's like pre-submitted questions, audience questions, and then co-host questions. So I'm going to call that. You made quite a transition in your career. As you mentioned from school teacher, you went to a code school and did one of those boot camps. I bet a lot of people have considered that. I bet a lot of people tuning in have considered that at one time or another of like, oh, should I do that? Should I dive in and like either make that pivot fully in my career, you know, to maybe spend say six to 18 weeks diving in and learning that skill set. So I'll have it for the rest of my life. Maybe talk about that experience of switching from a school teacher to software development and learning code. Yeah, yeah. You know, I spent so much time preparing for something, thinking my whole college career, I'm going to be a school teacher. You know, you spend four years in college, time and money and effort building towards a specific goal, a specific trajectory. You get into it, you do it for a few years and you decide this isn't working for me from one way or another. You know, maybe it's money driven. Maybe it's you're not happy in your job. Maybe it's not fulfilling, whatever your reason. But there's other thing that you are passionate about, but it's a little scary because I've already put so much time and effort into this that completely changing my trajectory is basically in a way throwing all of that away. And I had to find a place, I had to find a way to be okay with telling myself that that's not wasted time. Right. That's not throwing all of that away. I wouldn't have gotten where I am now without that, obviously. I can still build on that. There's no such thing as unrelated experience because we learn from everything and it shapes our character and it shapes how we make decisions and how we weigh losses. And for me, switching to boot camp was the greatest decision I ever made. It was also the scariest decision I ever made. I had a, you know, relatively okay paying job that was pretty secure. You know, everyone's always looking for teachers. But then I quit that job and then went thousands of dollars in the debt so that I could go to this school in the hopes that maybe I'll be able to do this thing that I've never even tried before. That was scary. Yeah. It ended up being a great choice. I met some great people in that school. I grew up in Orlando, but happened to be in, for reasons we won't get into, but I was in Seattle. And so I was like in a tech area. I figured I'm just going to immerse myself in this, go to meetups, and I'm just going to do this thing as hard as I can. And there was a lot of rejection after I graduated. It wasn't like I graduated, boom, I got a job. I was working as TaskRabbit, building people's IKEA furniture to make sure I paid the bills and was able to, you know, afford a $15 burrito because that's what they go for in Seattle, whatever. Seattle, yep. Yeah. So, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, you have a lot of grit. Eventually, after getting turned down, I thought eventually maybe one day I might have a remote job. And it turns out my first job out of that boot camp school was ConvertKit, which is a fully remote company. So I went from a job that I wasn't happy in to my most ideal situation, working with a bunch of really cool people with a really cool mission. Can't really complain. It's fun how sometimes you have this idea for your career of like this linear increase or improvement. And when it ends up with a stair step, like this morning, I was watching our coworker Charlie's video on her promotion to creative director. She put that on her channel and I'll drop a link if anyone wants it. Or actually, Teddy, go find a link for me. Thanks. I appreciate you. But I was watching that video and she was talking about how I'm just like eyeing the chat waiting for this link to show up, which, you know, there's a 15, 20 second delay. So it'll just take a second, but I'm sure Teddy will come through. 
<laughs> she talks about expecting to go from, you know, designer to senior designer to, okay, now I'm managing a couple of designers. Now she's creative director at ConvertKit. And so it's this like step function. And she expected like three steps in between there. And so it's interesting for you expecting that same thing of like, okay, I'm going to go to the boot camp and then I'm going to get maybe a local tech job and then I'm going to get a better one and then I'm going to try to find a remote one and then I'm going to try to find a remote one at a great company. Like you actually can just get that. I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, but get that step function into like, wow, this is three steps in one rather than the incremental progress. Yeah, it was surreal. You know, I just felt like after building a lot of hemness, I believe it was called dressers (laughs) from Ikea, which I can now build in my sleep. I was just like, you know, super excited for any opportunity to interview. Right. And then just finally getting a job where, like you said, it just felt like a giant leap forward. You know, I almost didn't even apply. And what led to me applying was actually an interview for a different company Hmm. where, you know, our director of engineering happened to meet him. And then he told me about ConvertKit. So it's funny how wherever I was looking to applying for jobs, ConvertKit wasn't there. Yeah. But I found it through some other way. You can never know what potential anything has for you. You just have to do it. Yeah, that's good. Looking at some of these other questions, there's one from Ryan. How do you prevent burnout as a creator when you have a day job and you do the creative stuff on the side? Burnout as a whole is a big question. I'll give my thoughts and then Miguel, you can jump in with your thoughts as well. We're both kind of in this scenario where, I don't know, I guess sometimes I feel like I have a day job just the same. I have like convergent stuff and then I'm trying to get my newsletter going and all that. I would say the first things that I would do is set really clear expectations of how I'm going to show up consistently each week. So for me right now, I'm going to publish my newsletter every week. That's the bar. Anything beyond that is a great success. Anything less than that is not acceptable. That's where I'm going to have the bar. And so I'm not like planning out all of these things that I'm doing because I know that my day job and my main focus needs to stay that way. That would be the first thing or the first approach is to have an outcome-based goal. Stick with that of like delivering the newsletter every week, publishing one blog post a week, you know, whatever that is. Or on the other side of, of just like, I'm going to work on it for X amount of time of like, I'm going to block off every Wednesday morning or Tuesday and Thursday nights or something like that. And my job is to just show up and do that. Emily is saying in the chat, read Sean McCabe's book, Overlap, which right here, little plug for that. Anyway, that's what I would say is set up how you're going to show up consistently and set those goals. Go for consistently hitting a relatively low bar. That's how I would do it. What advice did you have, Miguel? That's great advice. Before we move on with what I think, I just love the idea that I can mention any book at all and you have it behind you. So I'm going to go with, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye. No, no. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I've got like actually like 20 books there. Oh, okay. They just all happen to be written by friends. Perfect. But that would be a fun idea. I mean, of all the superpowers, that's, I guess, a pretty cool one. What comes to mind for me is, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. I think if you set really high expectations, if you set that bar really high, you're kind of setting yourself up to be disappointed whenever you don't hit that bar. And that will kind of like dig into your motivation, I think. Like a side project, especially if it's creative, it tends to be very passion driven. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of intrinsically motivated by something that excites you. And you know that other people are probably going to be excited about it. And you want to get that idea out there. And once people start reacting to what you're doing. I think that really makes things feel worthwhile, help fuel the tank, as it were. But yeah, if it's a side project, try to also remember it is a side project and try not to lose your motivation for what you know, you're, you're doing the main thing that you're doing. Because 
the reason that you can be good at your side project is because you're delivering on your main project. Right. If the other thing starts to suffer, then you're doing two things kind of crappy instead of, you know, meeting your goals all around. So Yeah, that makes sense. We talk a lot about side hustles, but main hustles are at least as important. Let's do maybe two more questions. Rapid fire. Tamaz, Tamaz. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably totally butchering pronunciations. You seem to be a big proponent of building in public. That's the web app challenge, audience building challenge, everything we do with ConvertKit. Should all creators use this strategy? What are the biggest benefits? Audience building, accountability, something else? Hmm. I'm a huge fan of this strategy. I think it's the easiest way to build an audience. I think you should do two things. One, you should have an interesting goal that you're pursuing. And building an audience is not an interesting goal. Building an audience is a tangential, like it's a byproduct of having an interesting goal. So if you were like, let's say, Miguel, years ago, you had started a blog of, I'm going to go from being a school teacher to I'm going to move across the country. I'm going to dive into learning to code. I'm going to go to this boot camp and I'm going to try to find a job at a remote company. That would be a journey that would unfold over the course of six months, a year, a couple of years. Yeah. And that would be a journey worth following because I'm like, there's someone who's actually doing things that I've like casually thought about or, you know, made excuses of why I can't do it or something like that. So the most interesting people to follow online, I think, are the ones who are doing interesting things offline. So the first thing I would say is embark on a journey worth following. And then when you do that, then you talk about it. So you clearly identify where you're going. And that could be something like, I'm going to have a job working in software at a remote company one year from today. And if you like put that out there, and that's what I did with the web app challenge for ConvertKit of like six months from now, I will have a SaaS app making $5,000 a month in revenue. Here's the criteria, let's go. And then people come out of the woodwork and they help you to do that. And like the number of people that offered advice and introductions and stuff like that is huge because when they see someone who's driven, right, they want to help them succeed. And then what you do is document the journey, right? So it's not working in public in the sense of here's what I did today of like this meandering, I don't have a purpose. I'm just trying to figure out what's next in life and like casually comment on it. It's working in public of, I have a clear goal of where I'm going. I've stated that in public. I've invited people to come along for the journey. And then I'll share what I'm up to in the steps along the way. So that's what I would do. Yep, I'm a huge advocate for it. And I recommend that everyone do it. So long as it's that and not the meandering, like random blogging. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... So I'm always a little bit skeptical about anything that claims to be like a skeleton key for any problem. So I don't think any one choice is the perfect choice across the board. Yeah. I think ideas of nuance and, you know, you should take that into account when deciding what kind of strategy you want to take. The nice thing about what you're talking about, it's highly adaptable and you can kind of make it work for whatever it is that you're trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my two cents on it. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, Noah's got one. Maybe we'll take this as our last question and then we'll we'll dive into creators and resources. He says, the pessimistic question's been going through my head. Why would somebody pay me, pay me money at an early stage when I may not know what I'm doing yet? Are they chumps doing it out of sympathy? Or is there a rational reason why someone would be an early customer? What do you think? Oh, it sounds like there's a lot going through Noah's head right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to that question. You know, I don't think they're chumps. You know, don't, I don't think that's the thing. So if you've done a good job showcasing what you have to offer has value, then you've done your job. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, money is obviously a symbol of value, right? Money is valuable. And when people make a choice to part with their money for something, it's because they think it's worth trading for. It's worth trading my hard-earned money for what you're saying is worth it. Noah mentioned not knowing what you're doing yet. You know, it's 
rare, if not impossible, that you have everything figured out from the beginning. Right. So you have to pay close attention to what works, what doesn't work, the feedback that you get from the people that you are reaching out to you or that seem to be interested or people in your audience. See, figure out what things are worth keeping, what things are worth changing and what you're going to do next. One thing that also like a strategy that a lot of businesses do is if people are skeptical about what you're offering, you can kind of help clear that bar of skepticism with some kind of incentive. If it's unproven, maybe incentivize them by saying, you know, I have an early adopter sale or coupon or something. Exactly. So you have some kind of a deal where like, I know that this might seem like it's not worth it or not, but I'll help you get over that skepticism and I'll meet you halfway by giving you some kind of discount or something. And then if you think it's worth it, great. And, you know, a lot of things out there have like money back guarantees if you think it's not worth it. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of help people get past that skepticism and see what you have to offer really is valuable. What do you think? Yeah, that makes sense. Making the pivot from, say, like services to products. Like often it's a lot easier to feel confident that we're providing value when it's a service. You probably didn't question the value you're providing when you were assembling IKEA furniture, right? It's pretty clear. But for some reason, when we jump all the way to I sold an ebook, a course, or some of those things, we tend to have a lot of imposter syndrome of like, oh, should someone really buy it? Should they trust me on this? You know, are they really going to get this outcome that I'm hoping that they will? Or I'm promising, you know, I'm implicitly promising that they will. And so something that can be helpful is to come back in that spectrum between service and product is to come back part way and maybe sell a product and then go above and beyond, right? If it's that first ebook or course that you're selling, what if they bought it for $30 or $99 or whatever the price point is? And then you were like, hey, I'm going to throw in bonus coaching calls with it where you make sure if you're unsure of the value you're providing, maybe you dive in and you make sure that they get that outcome and you provide them with coaching and help and stuff like that. That's what I did in some of the early days. Well, I did a lot in the early days of ConvertKit of like, I'm selling you the software and like, it's pretty good, but we've been working on it for two years and MailChimp has been working on theirs for like 15 years. So there's going to be some rough edges, you know? And I would make up for that in the product by going above and beyond of the services that we were providing. Or another example, even today when we came out with, or earlier this year, when we really pushed our free plan and our landing pages, made that a lot better. I would jump on calls with people and say like, let me help you build a landing page. Because then they'd be like, oh, it shouldn't be like this. I want it like that. And I'd be like, okay, you can't do that in the product yet. And I'd make a note. I'd write some custom CSS to work around it and then go to that team and say like, you know, go to our landing page builder team and say like, hey, can we enable this use case? So it gave me a lot of hands-on experience. It made sure that customers were successful because you went above and beyond there. And then the last thing is it gave me that confidence that like, yes, this product is really useful. Noah, in your question, I hear a lot of imposter syndrome of like, oh, is it actually providing that value? So this way you can take it all the way to making sure that you're providing the value, then build up your own confidence in the products that you're selling. All right, that's probably a good place for questions. We have a few more. We'll save them for next week. We have a game of Among Us to get to. There's murder coming up. Subterfuge. Let's see, Barrett would be disappointed if we didn't go, ba-dum-bum-bum, creator of the day. Barrett always says theme music. I We'll see. Miguel, what do you got for a creator today? Yeah. So Nathan, you and I share a love of woodworking. We do. That's something that I'm pretty passionate about and I do on the side and I don't ever call it, you know, uh, it's not a side hustle. It's just a hobby that brings me joy. So there's a guy called, and maybe you guys have heard of him, his name is Steve Ramsey and he runs a website called Woodworking for Mere Mortals. 
And he's just super fun to watch. All of his videos, he's very lighthearted. He's actually kind of funny sometimes. Sometimes I'm watching it on YouTube, on my TV, in my living room. And my wife will come and just sit down and watch it with me. And she has no interest in this stuff whatsoever. (laughs) She just really kind of enjoys him even though what he's talking about isn't really a subject that she cares about, yeah, which is pretty cool. So like just being approachable makes the subject matter almost secondary if it's fun to watch. So this is kind of something to think about. But yeah, he's great. And he's taught me a lot of stuff. And what I like about him is that he gears himself more towards people who are interested in woodworking and then want to get good at it. It's really approachable because it's not like you got to go out and spend 10 grand on a bunch of fancy equipment. Like he has a thing where he has a list that's free and kind of like his free incentive thing that he sends out there is basically giving you a tool list of how to build out a great woodworking studio for under a thousand dollars. Nice. So the idea is either being approachable and being cheap. And then he has other products. One program that I wanted to highlight was he has this thing called the weekend woodworker. You spend six weekends that you're building a project and you're building on skills that you did the week before. And, you know, the idea is like you're doing it on the weekend, doing it on your off time. You're doing it, keeping in mind that woodworking can be very expensive. Yep. And it's just super approachable in every way, in his personality, in the money aspect. Like I mentioned before about the money back guarantee, everything that he does, he gives you a 30 days. If in 30 days you feel like this wasn't worth the whatever I paid, if you don't find value in it, by all means, you know, I'll give you your money back. I'm sure that's good feedback for him too, because then that means he's got to go back to the drawing board to offer more value and figure out how to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. His stuff looks great. And I love that idea of taking a complex, intimidating subject that people are like, I'd love to get into woodworking, but I don't have, you know, like if I had my grandfather's shop or if I had, you know, something like that or the space or all this, I could do it. But that's not for me. You know, he's saying like, no, no, no. We'll trim it down to cost effective tools relatively like a thousand dollars is still a lot to spend, but you can work up to it. And some of the stuff, you know, you probably already have your handy. So I just love that approach of taking something and making it accessible. My resource of the day and my creator of the day are related. So my resource of the day is this article about Daniel Eck, who's the CEO of Spotify. And this is a long form interview. It's actually very long. It just keeps going and going and going. But it's so good. You know, I use Spotify every single day. I hadn't actually really dove in on, you know, the people behind it. You read about like Zuckerberg and Bezos and these other CEOs. And I mean, Daniel Eck has built something pretty impressive. And so it was fun to dive in on how he spends his day, how he tries to have lots of meetings and conversations, but most of them unscheduled so that they can be spontaneous when someone on his team or someone has an idea and they can talk when there's that excitement rather than scheduling time a week from now or all of that. So anyway, it's a really good article. Definitely check it out. And then my creator of the day, Sriram Krishnan, he was at Twitter, Snap and Facebook. He's done a bunch of startups and stuff like that. He's doing a lot of stuff. He has a newsletter. He invests a bunch, but he has this site, The Observer Effect, which is, he just has two interviews, Mark Andreessen and Daniel Eck, but just super high quality. Our buddy Rafal did the design for it. Anyway, theobservereffect.org. And then you can find the interview with Daniel Eck. Miguel, what's your resource? Oh, okay. So my resource is kind of talking about how we talking about newsletters before. This is my resource. It's a great Medium article by a guy named Mike Rabb. And he kind of goes into talking about newsletters, why they're popular. And he breaks it down into some pretty easy chunks. And he breaks it down into these three things. You know, the idea how, how it's passive distribution as opposed to stuff that you go out and look for and making sure that it's useful and then why personality is also important. And he kind of dives in a little bit further and he breaks down newsletters into genres, which I thought was pretty cool. So, you know, you have like kind of like your news, 
sort of digest. You got your deep dives and then community specific. And I love the idea of using email and using newsletters as a, a way of, like you mentioned before, Nathan, of just getting really like deep diving into a topic and really having an audience that is approaching you about something and you being able to give them something that they find really valuable and gives them some new insight on something very specific. I feel like a lot of things out there are very generalized. And I think Seth Godin talks about this too, about you know generalization versus specialization, but I think there's room for both. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you on Monday. And as always, feel free to drop a question on Twitter and get there in advance. Miguel, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.